early detection, uh, what we call multi-cancer early detection. If you hear the acronym MSED uh, from companies, so that that's an area where I think we're going to continue to see a lot of development. Hello, welcome to episode 60 of the MedTech Podcast. You join me, your host, Karandeep Singh Dadwell. Under this episode, we have Mark McDonough, CEO of Chromacode, an innovator in molecular genomics, providing easy-to-implement, cost-effective workflows within oncology and genomics. Mark has over 25 years' experience helping build high-growth healthcare organizations. He was most recently the CEO of Perion, now Valsera, which he led to a successful sale to Summer Equity, a private equity firm, in 2022. Prior to Perion, he led CombiMatrix for five years, culminating in a sale to Invite in 2017. Over his career, Mark has held various executive and commercial positions and even once served as a US Naval officer. In this episode, we delve into Mark's experience in the healthcare space and his thoughts on the future of healthcare with HDPCR technology. We discuss his experiences of growing and selling multiple businesses alongside the many lessons he learned along the way. He shares his advice in terms of what to look for in potential board member and advisory roles alongside the reasons that may you may not want to consider such positions, and his reasons for continuing to work within the healthcare sector. Welcome to the show, Mark. How are you today? Uh, great. Thanks for having me. So, Mark, what exactly are you working on at Chromacode, and what does the future for you look like there? Yeah, no, so um, what we're working on at Chromacode is delivering high-impact, um, highly accessible tests that leverage our chemistry and our software platform um, so that people can uh, get answers to you know complicated problems across multiple different disease states faster and in a less expensive manner than through conventional uh, modalities. And so I'll kind of tie in our history here. The company was founded uh, by a, a gentleman named Aditya Rajagopal, who's our current CTO, really, really sharp guy uh, with uh, electrical engineering. Both He got his undergrad, master's and PhD from Caltech here in California, um, and founded um, Chromacode, uh, you know, several years ago. And so we have proprietary IP around our ability to do multiplexing, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit later about our HDPCR technology. Um, and, uh, and, and we really believe that we can leverage this to be very disruptive to help millions of patients globally. So um, what we're working on today is uh, we have a lung cancer assay that's in an early access program with uh, uh, five different institutions across the world, and, and we're looking to add more. Um, and, and looking for a full commercial launch of this product in early of next year. And then uh, we also have a, an, an assay that we have built um, for acute leukemia. And we're in the early stages of, of building a test, leveraging our platform for uh, organ transplant rejection. So at a really high level, kind of if you think about it, what we do is uh, combine chemistry and software to either build our own assays that can be leveraged on a digital PCR platform from com you know companies that manufacture digital PCR instrumentation are folks like Kyogen, 
Roche, Thermo Fisher, BioRad, and then there's some um, smaller companies like Stilla and, and other new companies coming to market in that space. And they're craving content for these instruments. And so we are building that content through our own assays, but also through our team and our software capabilities, we can help platform companies build their own uh, tests. So if they have a problem they want to solve either a, a, par a platform partner or a large commercial laboratory, and they say, hey, Chromacode, we want to look at this 25 targets for a particular disease state, we can work with them to build it. So it, the platform has uh, a lot of flexibility to be either someone buys product from us or we enable them by building with them in a partnership. Does that make sense? Yep, makes sense. So touching on what you said, you mentioned HDPCR technology. What is that? How does it work? And how does that differ from some of the other conventional systems out there? Yeah, so HDPCR is, is basically a combination of unique chemistries, um, an incredible software platform that we've built at Chromacode, and our IP-protected multiplexing capabilities. And what it does, that sounds great, but what we really are doing is we're significantly increasing in a quantitative manner the amount of targets per sample that one can look at versus just a single gene PCR reaction, et cetera. So um, the applications for that, for example, in our lung cancer assay, we can use you know three wells uh, on a digital PCR instrument. With this one, we've optimized our HDPCR on the Kyogen Kyacuity system for our lung cancer assay and look at 15 biomarkers 10 of which are DNA biomarkers and five of which are RNA infusions, which is very, sometimes very difficult, even in sequencing, to, to look at. Um, and so we build a comprehensive targeted panel. But what's game-changing, Karnadeep, uh, is that it's comprehensive, much more comprehensive than what you can get from single gene. Yet, when compared to like NGS or next-generation sequencing, we can do this significantly faster because time to treatments are really important for a patient especially with a well-characterized disease like lung cancer where there's a lot of therapies. So time to treatment, we can get an answer um, back to the laboratory in 24 hours. And, and I should say the lab runs this in-house on their own system with our kit. It's not a central lab. It's done there with our instrument on a, uh, or with our kit on a Kaijin instrument. And so, you know, very quickly, which with significantly less capital and reagent expense, they can get answers so that um, on these targeted biomarkers, you can determine, do I treat with immunotherapy or is there a TKI that, you know, a, a, a targeted therapy we can go with? And so in that same scenario, if you did sequencing um, for lung cancer, it could take anywhere from 7 to 21 days. So it's fast. It requires significantly less tissue, which is really critical in, in lung. Um, or I should say it enables less tissue, the HDPCR uh, technology combined with our assay, uh, and it's less expensive. So, so we believe it's going to be disruptive and, and, and game-breaking, and we really believe it's uh, a perfect, like, fills that gap between where single-gene RT-PCR assays work and next-generation sequencing works uh, to deliver faster, more comprehensive tests. So that's a little bit of a mouthful, but uh, hopefully that makes sense. 
Have you faced any regulatory burdens trying to bring this technology out there, or would you say that's not been too much of an issue so far? Well, I wouldn't say it's not an issue. We built this assay as an RUO, our first one in lung cancer. But, you know, given the, um, we're in the comment period with, you know, the FDA on on some changes that uh, uh, are, are likely to happen in the latter part of the decade, we are always super compliant when we, um, in, a, in our previous history where when we built infectious disease and assays for COVID, our, our assay for COVID went through the uh, emergency use authorization process. So we have a pretty robust quality team and we understand um, the process for regulatory well at Chromacode. That said, for lung, we've chosen to build it as an RUO. Um, our uh, organ transplant rejection test, will, will more than likely, we will take that uh, through the pathway of the FDA. Uh, to be an IVD, but good question. It, it's it's something that we we are um, number one. We we take great pride in building assays that are going to be that we stand behind are going to be high quality. We have a, a strong QMS program at, at the company, so for our RUO LDT products, we stand behind them wholeheartedly. But on the same token, we want to make sure. You know, with the transplant um, uh, path, that that we think that's a a really uh, a perfect path for us for um, for IBD and FDA uh, FDA regulatory authority. So you mentioned the FDA. So my understanding, of course, you're planning on bringing this into the US first. Are there any perhaps any other jurisdictions around the world where you're looking to target? Oh sure, no. I mean, so for example, um, one of our partners right now is MedGenome in India. And, you know, they've done a really, really nice job of as being a genomic organization, bringing cutting edge technology um, to not just India, but uh, EMEA and other parts of the world. And so they're, they're a, a partner on our early access program. Um, but for sure, we uh, we intend to uh, to be a global organization because we think, you know, the, the fast turnaround, less expensive uh type of technology can certainly help in, uh, in emerging countries, you know, and, and so uh, we're excited to do that. Our, our goal is to help as many patients globally as we can, right? Pretty much full stop on that. So having worked within this space and particularly on lung cancer, what would you say is perhaps not so much common knowledge about this disease? Hmm, good question. Well, I think um, in the past, um, and it's still, you know, the data is still fairly ominous, if you will. I mean, it's always been kind of just known as like a killer, right, for stage four. And I do think um, we live and breathe it every day. So we see this. And I also am touched by my mother-in-law who is, is responding well to immunotherapy. But I think that the key takeaway I, I would suggest is th these these therapies are working. The immunotherapy is working. Um, we're developing new targeted markers, and um, and and there's a lot of options to um, make sure you get stratified. If you're a patient, you know, ensure that you demand that you get stratified, and so you're aware of uh, of your optionality as for targets and and therapies. Because uh, I think the industry has done a really nice job of. <clears throat> of coalescing to deliver uh, uh, better solutions with less toxicity to people who are suffering from 
from lung cancer, right? And so, and then the second piece is, you know, maybe common knowledge because we're in the bit in the space, but you know, the earlier you can detect any of this stuff, the better shot we have at um, at, at treating it and helping you. And what has been the response from the healthcare practitioners so far? Are they happy to see this sort of technology, or they're still a little bit wary of it? Oh, great question. So it's we're we're definitely pioneers. The receptivity is high, and then how you bring that to to fruition to the market, you know, has has a process. And what I mean by that is when people are bringing in new technologies, number one, they want to make sure it works really well in their own hands. And which is a super fair request, right? So we will do all the demonstration and run on their samples to prove that it works. Number two, um, the nature of our our world is you can't run a ton of tests if you're not going to be reimbursed for them. So we have a a, a very strong uh, reimbursement strategy to work with our partners because. The clinical utility, why we're doing what we're doing makes a ton of sense to both Medicare and to the payers, right? Because we're able to save money. One of our big things is if you use our assay as a frontline test, you'll be able to determine an actual marker 55% of the time. So if you would have just done sequencing at a much higher cost up front, you would really charge the healthcare system more money. So we've done some healthcare economic studies around how we're uh, saving the system money. And so as we prove that out, we'll be able to secure contracts. And once we have different payers saying, hey, I'll pay for this, then the local markets are will be even more comfortable saying, oh, okay, I want to buy this instrument from Kyogen and these kits from Chromacode because I know that if I do it, it's A, good for my patients, B, uh, we'll be reimbursed appropriately and fairly so that it makes sense as a as a business to run in the laboratory. So so we have a, a we're not new to doing pioneering tests. This is kind of the third company I've had or fourth actually where we've been new to market and you have to establish a reimbursement pathway and an adoption pathway. Um, but at a high level to your to your point the, the clinician and the pathologist response has been really favorable. They see the value as a, as a as a frontline test. Now we're in the um uh, kind of the blocking tackling of of how do you bring it in? How do you prove its validity? How do you get it so it can be run as a as a fair business? And and we're very flexible with our with our early access program customers too on risk sharing. You know, if they're not getting paid fully, we're not going to charge them fully. You know, that's just so it's a it's a give and take on this because we want to do right by the patients we serve uh, and develop long term relationships in that regard. So. So on the topic of lung cancer, would you say there's any particular states or areas in the U.S. where it's a bit more prolific than others? And if so, why would you say that is? You're catching me in a question. I don't have the data in front of me. That's a that's a that's a great that's a great question. I don't I don't know. I mean, I would. Yeah, I I could assume like somewhere like Vegas or something like that. But a lot of times, the people who are smoking and things like that are are maybe even transplants. But I I, I don't know. I don't have that data. And I wouldn't even want to speculate because I'd sound silly. Uh, but but good but good question. But it, it's a it's a certainly a you know it's certainly a problem throughout. I mean I guess traditionally we could say Tobacco Road and other areas of the country. I I mean if I was to hypothesize, I'd probably say the Carolinas and you know Florida and 
and and maybe areas like that might have a higher prevalence, but I don't have that data out or in front of me. So what other uses are there for this technology? Are there particular different types of cancers you're looking at or maybe other diseases? You know, what is your, your future plan with this yeah. product? Yeah, so we, we see a lot of applications in, in uh, therapy selection. Uh, so you, we, as I said, we start with lung cancer. We're looking, uh, we have, we built an assay for acute leukemia. Um, we also see, uh, opportunities and we've done, uh, uh, some, some preliminary work on minimal residual disease for both solid tumors and acute leukemias. Uh, and then, um, we're also looking at applications. As I mentioned, we're in the, uh, proof of concept and in, in investing pretty significantly on, uh, organ transplant rejection, um, because, uh, our fast turnaround times there can really help. Uh, the clinician, as, as, as he or she is determining whether they should do a biopsy uh, on on an organ to determine if it's if it's failing or not, and that can be obviously really painful. And so, um, being able to have a 24-hour turnaround time uh, will be very disruptive. As the companies that are doing a nice job now in this testing on cell-free DNA are more for uh, patients that are being surveyed so that the turnaround isn't as critical and they send out for sequencing and it can take, you know, five to seven days. So there's a there's a real unmet need on what we call for cause uh, on the testing of these organ transplants. And so that that could be a, a, a multi-billion dollar market. It's not that could it's not that that could be that is a multi-billion dollar market that could be really a, a, a transformative revenue anchor for the company in the in the next five years. So having worked in this space for a few years, where do you see the future of healthcare going? Do you see more remote patient monitoring? You know, what sort of things are you observing in your work? I think we're going to continue to see great developments in, um, you know, early detection, uh, what we call multi-cancer early detection. If you hear the acronym MSED uh, from companies, so that... That's an area where I think we're going to continue to see a lot of development. Um, I think we're going to continue to see, you're hearing a lot of entrance into market on minimal residual disease, but it's because um, if you can look at blood and just monitor uh, patients over time and, and see how they're responding to therapies and, and react quickly, I think we'll, we'll make some even further game-changing breakthroughs on outcomes. So I, I, I see that. Um, a lot of the things that have happened over the last 10 years are going to continue to evolve like into with liquid biopsy testing, getting more sensitive and, you know, and things like that. So those are areas that I know particularly well and there is, I don't know well, but there's just been a lot of, um, you know, a lot of activity in or you know, spatial genomics and, and proteomics. So I'm going to continue to study a little bit more about, about those cause I'm not a, by any means a subject matter expert on them, but there seems to be a significant amount of investment there in an AI for, um, uh, for pathology and oncology solutions. So having worked in multiple different roles as a CEO, advisor, board member, etc., what attributes do you generally look for in a company before you decide working with them? Yeah, I, I, I look at um, A, um, not to go all Tony Robbins on you, but I, I look at can I contribute to them, right? So I don't, the first thing I, I want to see is, uh, you know, I don't need to just grab a title or, um, you know, join join something unless I can really add value. So that's the first thing is, A, do they have a gap where my skill set uh, as a board member, as an advisor can be helpful? B, you know, is the team, uh, 
you know, talented, open, um, you know, fun to fun to work with, smart. Is it is it something where I'll enjoy committing my time and effort to this group? And then the third thing is uh, looking at the tech, looking at the technology and the applications. And is it is it something that could be, you know, pretty cool uh, and, and helpful? So, you know, I joined a, a, a board, um, you know, earlier this year. We announced it a few weeks ago, but um, uh, one of my uh, former colleagues' companies in bladder cancer, and it's, it's doing some really kind of cool things um, for patients who are suffering from, you know, hematuria and, and could potentially have, uh, you know, bladder cancer. So those are the types of things that, uh, that I look for. Technology team, and can I help, really? So continue one of the topic of board member and advisory roles. How exactly did you attract these sorts of positions? And what are the reasons why somebody should consider taking on these sorts of roles? And, and sorry, what was the second question? And what is the reason why what? What, yeah, what why is the I reason should, why somebody why, should consider taking them on? Yeah, I mean, um, for advisor, advisory roles, you know, I, I built my advisory business um, when I was trying to decide uh, you know, do I want to remain as an operator? Um, so, you know, and I advised four different, four or five different companies over the, uh, after I sold my first company to a public company. And, and so when I, when I work for a company like Chromacode as a CEO and board member, I, I really don't do it much on the advisory front just because I don't want to be disingenuous to Chromacode. My, my life, you know, I, I've um, I'm paid very fairly. I have a team that trusts me, so I'm very focused on on this. Uh, on the board role, similarly, I give it the appropriate time. Um, and you know wh why one should consider them is it really. Uh, and so for me, it's really been cool because it's it. Um, I was attracted to, as I mentioned, the board, the other board I'm on um, by the team and trust in both the concept and the team. And so why someone who's a listener of yours um, should consider them, uh, it should be for the right reasons for him or her. Like, don't just try to get on a board to get on a board, you know. it's uh, It would be something like, you know, you should consider that if you think it's going to really expand your career and network. If you, because uh, I find these boardrooms are really fascinating. You learn a lot from different people and different perspectives just in the conversation. So that's really kind of cool as an intellectual stimulation. Um, but uh, I, I would I would choose them um, or seek them out if you're not being recruited for them. You know, based on kind of the criteria. For for me, I set the three criteria I have, and whatever criteria. Uh, that person has of what they really want to achieve in their career. I think that's what I, that's what he or she should do as they try to consider them. For me, it's team technology and can I help them get to a place they want to go. So having worked with many different companies, bought companies, sold companies, worked in mergers and acquisitions, etc. What is it exactly that keeps the fire going inside you? What gets you up in the morning? Oh, I mean, I've been very lucky. I've said this since I first came into um, Ventana in 1997 that I work in a space where I can both have selfish motivations of wanting to maximize my personal income that can, which now as I no longer, now, that was when I was 28 and 
you know, just married with no kids, you know, and it was just kind of us. Now it's even more, you know, the, the income's more important because I have three kids and I want to perpetuate them through generations to um, be able to make a positive impact on life and then have their children do it. And then on the flip side is I, I'm, I'm in a space where I think we're really doing some amazing things to to help people. And it may sound, you know, hokey or cheesy, but it's true. So, so what gets me up in the morning is, um, now that I lead a team, I don't take that lightly. So I want to, I, I want to be the best leader I can be. And I want to be authentic. Um, that's important. I want to do the best I can for my family to provide a better life. And then, you know, I, I want to provide the best outcome for the company because I have a fiduciary duty to the shareholders and to my employees. And then last, we're in a pretty cool space, man. Like we, we get a chance to help. We do this right. Help millions of patients across the world. And then that's, that's something you can, you know, over a coffee or a beer, tell your friends very proudly, or more importantly, you know, pass down generationally is we're making an impact and you can actually feel like you're, you're a part of that. So that's pretty special. So working in multiple positions clearly takes up a lot of your time, but what do you get up to outside of work? Uh, yeah, I live, uh, I'll share, I don't want to share too much. I live a pretty boring life. No, I, uh, you know, we, um, my kids keep me busy um, with their activities. Um, and so I'm sometimes a taxi on the weekends as my kids are just starting to get into the driving mode. Um, I enjoy, I am kind of a, an addict for exercise. I run every day. I've been doing that for 30 years. So, whereas I used to do, you know, ultra marathons and marathons and seven, eight miles a day. Now I'm down to three or four miles a day, but I, and I'm slow, but I do it religiously. And so, you know, that really, uh, is important to me, uh, sports. And then, you know, my faith, those are all really kind of the, the important things to me, but it's, uh, not as fun a life, you know, uh, uh, on the on the weekends or the nights, uh, maybe when I was a younger man. So, <laughs> as we've discussed as well, there's a lot of changes happening in this space. It's moving quicker and quicker than ever. How exactly do you keep up with the different changes and keep yourself educated onto what's happening? Yeah, so I, I think it's just trying to stay up. A, you know, stay in tune with. Um, with the news and the literature and, and I, uh, I'm fortunate. I also have a, I have a team here that's great on, they comb the literature like every day and on Slack, they'll post different articles. They find fascinating that are, you know, tied to what we're doing or adjacent businesses. So the, the really neat thing is we have access to a lot of great information. Right. And so it's, um, I think the way you can you can stay as current as you want to be is how, is how I would phrase it, right? And so if, if you really want to stay current on the technology, I think there's a lot of tools to do that, and our team does a nice job of sharing um, and, and, you know, picking the brain of our board members who are very well connected in different portfolio companies, which is also neat, um, and then just leveraging our networks to, to stay educated. Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. What one piece of advice would you be leaving the listeners with? Yeah, I, I really believe um, being authentic and genuine to to people is really, really important, whether it's in leadership or whether it's to your customers or to your bosses. So for me, to my 
board and investors. You know, I, I think when you're authentic, you build trust. And when you build trust, it, it can help in a number of different ways, you know, down the road. And, um, I think that's probably it. Thank you very much for your time, Mark. Awesome. Thank you.